Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to read this morning from Luke's Gospel, and I know if you're reading along with our Bible reading plan, you're still in Mark. Um, but you're almost done with it. Mark's a short little Gospel, and I'm going to make you read it again before we get to Easter. Because <laughs> there's something about it in that last few days coming up to the celebration of Easter, rereading the whole story again and reminding yourself of the full picture of the gospel. So I'm actually just going to skip ahead and start preaching from Luke, because Luke is a nice long gospel with lots of detail to get through, and it can take a while to really pick through it all. So we're in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. So it might surprise you to know that my wife and I sometimes fight. And on very rare occasions, I mean one in a million, I'm the one in the wrong. <laughs> Doesn't happen often, but it does, you know, sometimes. Um, but, but actually, you know, more often than not, both of us have messed up. And it's in those situations that, that one of us then has to be the, the first one to offer an apology and ask for forgiveness. And nobody likes doing that, right? You don't like to admit that you were wrong. 
And it hurts. It hurts because we, we think that since the other one has said something hurtful or done something disrespectful, they're the ones who sinned against us. We're justified in everything we've done since. So they should be the first ones to come and apologize and, and ask for forgiveness and all of that, right? We turn all of our... T- every married couple is laughing in the room right now. I love it. <laughs> we turn all of our attention to how we have been wronged, and, and in the process, we actually lose sight of our own faults and our own mistakes and the ways in which we've sinned, and, and we then miss our own need for grace and mercy in that moment. And it's with that background that we're going to turn to this story in Luke's gospel. So when Jesus tells the people in the synagogue, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, what he is telling them is, I am the Messiah. I mean, he's just quoted this long bit of Isaiah that talks about the day when the Messiah will come, and then he says, this is happening. This is the day. So put yourself in their shoes for a minute, right? Imagine that a young man who you've known all his life comes to preach at your church one day, and, and you've watched him grow up, and you know his parents. You might have helped change his diapers when he was little. You've seen him as a teenager, right? You watched him develop acne and flirt awkwardly with girls. You watched him get in trouble with his parents. If you ever helped with the youth ministry, you might have had to give him a long lecture at some point about how to behave properly around other people, right? You know all of that in his background, and then he goes away as an adult, and you start to hear rumors. Maybe supposedly he's doing all kinds of amazing things at the church down the street. You're hearing him doing all these, these miracles, and he's, he's healing people who are sick, and he's casting out demons. He's performing miracle after miracle after miracle. And now he is telling you in front of the whole church that he is the Savior you've all been waiting for. What do you do? And the amazing thing is that at first, everyone in the synagogue is impressed. They speak well of him. They believe him. Which makes it sound like his teenage years were kind of boring probably, right? Because no one who knew me as a teenager would have thought I'd be doing this to me. Um, but so the, the, the thing is, these villagers, they are primed to accept these messianic claims. They're primed to welcome anyone who's going to call themselves the Messiah because they're desperate. They wanted their Messiah to come and overthrow the Romans. And there were plenty of people who claimed to be doing exactly that. There were plenty of people who claimed to be the Messiah and they gathered armies about themselves and they rebelled against the Romans and invariably they're slaughtered. They fail. But as soon as they're killed, another would-be Messiah springs up. Some, more often than not, it's like their brother or their son or someone else in their family who comes up and says, okay, so he got it wrong. He wasn't the Messiah, but this time we're sure it's me. Let's go. Over and over again, the cycle happens. There's before Jesus and after Jesus. There are multiple men who have this moment where they decide that they're the Messiah. They've been called by God to rise up in rebellion against Rome, and they do it. And these, the, the dead false messiahs are, are not um, like reviled as pretenders or failures. They are without exception celebrated as heroes and martyrs. And now the people in Nazareth realize that one of their own, someone from their town, is going to try his hand at this whole messiah thing, and they are excited. 
These are an oppressed people. Most of their land, which is their birthright given to them by God, is now owned by wealthy foreigners on these massive estates who force them to rent it back at exorbitant rates. They pay unsustainably high rates in their taxes. They're being extorted and abused and oppressed. And because of all this, their entire understanding of sin is that sin is what the oppressors do and salvation is what happens when the oppressors are overthrown. And this, by the way, is why Jesus' message is so often greeted with rage and anger by the Jewish community because he comes to them and says, well, yes, it's true, you're oppressed. It's true that this is sinful and it's wrong. But you're sinning too. And salvation is not going to be overthrowing the Roman Empire. Salvation is your redemption from your own sin. And so time and time again, he preaches this message and is rejected because it's not what the people want to hear because they're so wrapped up in their own sense that they've been wronged and violated and treated with injustice that they cannot see their own need for grace and mercy. And so at first, the Nazarenes are all excited. They're about to have their own Messiah. He's one of their own. They had a hand in raising him because that's how it happened. And that day you have the small little village. They all help raise all the children. They've all known him his whole life. And now they've heard all the incredible things he's been doing over in Capernaum. And look, if you're on the hill where Nazareth is, you can pretty much see where Capernaum is. These places are all less than a day's walk from each other. The news that's coming out of that village gets there really fast. They know all the details. They know he's been healing people. Capernaum is where more than half of the miracles in the gospel take place. A lot has been going on. They are excited because they're thinking, look, if he did all that incredible stuff over there for those strangers, imagine what he'll do for us. The people of his hometown, his family, his community, the ones who know him best. And, and then Jesus veers off course. And he starts telling them about the greatest prophets in their history and how they didn't actually do much for the people in their own community. They went to, to foreign lands. Sidon is part of Lebanon, naming the Syrian, obviously Syrian, not part of Israel. Their greatest miracles were reserved for people who were not Israelites, who did not worship the God of Israel. Because actually the children of God are expected to be faithful without miracles. The greatest signs from God are reserved for those who are not counted among the descendants of Abraham. And, and that message turns out to be totally unacceptable to the people of Nazareth. God's not supposed to care about the Gentiles. He's their God, not the Gentiles' God. The Messiah isn't supposed to care about anybody but his own people because he's the conquering hero who's going to overthrow the Romans. And so they respond by trying to kill Jesus. How quickly they turn from love to hatred when Jesus tells them something they don't want to hear. When they realize this Messiah is not going to be who they want him to be, they try to kill him. we have to ask ourselves, what is it we don't want Jesus to be? What parts of his message do we reject? 
what could Jesus say to us right now that would turn us against him? And if you're thinking to yourself, there's nothing he could say that would turn me against him, you're wrong. You're dead wrong because we all have something. For each and every one of us, there is something Jesus could say to us, some part of the gospel message he could say, you need to hear this, that would turn us against him. Maybe he's just pointing out your sins, the places where you need forgiveness and grace and mercy. Maybe he's saying to us he's not going to do all the things we want him to do, or maybe he won't help us get the job we want. Maybe he won't miraculously heal the people we want him to heal. Maybe he has other plans and purposes that are actually at odds with ours. And if that's the case, can we handle it? This, by the way, this is the last time Jesus is in Nazareth. He never comes back. Their rejection of him was final. It's never the case that God chooses to cut us off to reject us, to condemn us. God will always welcome us. He'll always offer forgiveness and mercy and grace. But he is who he is and he does what he does and that is not going to change. We're invited into God's presence and God will always welcome us in. The only question is, are we okay with who God is? Will we love him or will we hate him? See, we would, we would rather force God to conform to our image of what we want him to be, to do the things we want him to do. And then when God doesn't match our expectations, we're a lot more likely to reject him altogether than to reflect on how we need to change. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't like rebuke the people who are trying to shove him off a cliff? He doesn't fight it. I might have resisted a little bit. Or said, what are you doing, you crazy people? But he doesn't do any of that, right? He just passes through the crowd and walks away. There's no anger. There's, there's no retribution. He simply leaves them to their own devices. When we reject him, he accepts our rejection. He doesn't force himself on people. Jesus doesn't coerce people. He lets us make our choice. Even when we hate him, though, even when we're ready to throw him off the cliff. He loves us. And it's precisely that love that drives him to let us make the choice. His gospel does not conform to what we want it to be. Because it's better than anything we could come up with on our own. Jesus' solutions to all of our problems are better and more effective than anything we could come up with or implement under our own power. Look back at, look back at this story. Think about what they wanted him to do. This, by the way, this whole episode takes place right after he's tempted in the desert by Satan. He goes right from being tempted by Satan with power over the entire world to being rejected by his hometown. There's nothing in between. After he turns down Satan's offer of power over the whole world, he has a chance to become the hero his hometown has always wanted. He could, in this place, set himself up as a ruler. And it wouldn't be just the people of Nazareth. Likely all of the people in the Galilee region would have followed him. He could have rallied an army and led a rebellion and been a hero. 
And the only catch is he knows that there is a better way. A way that would only cost one life instead of thousands. He knows that the people of Nazareth want him to lead their sons into glorious death as martyrs. That's what they want. But he also knows he can accomplish something far greater with only his own life at stake. And for that, the people reject him. They can't understand what it is he's planning. They can't see how what they want is not in line with the scriptures. They can't see how they're wrong. They're, they're blinded by their own feelings of oppression and injustice, and they've been wrong, which is absolutely true, but now they can't accept that they might also have sinned and be in need of redemption. And so when Jesus isn't who they thought he was, he rejects them. And this is the constant pattern all throughout the Gospels. People who can't accept that Jesus isn't who they want him to be will reject him. And the people who are willing to be with him, they don't always understand what he's doing. They don't always seem to get the message. They aren't always totally sure about him. The disciples themselves never fully get what he's doing until the very end. But there's always at least that openness, that willingness to follow him, even if they aren't totally sure where he's leading them. Jesus is not who we want him to be. God is not made in our image. And the moment that you are not challenged and troubled by parts of the gospel is the moment you have lost sight of the truth. See, God doesn't care about our expectations. He doesn't perform miracles on command. He's not like a cosmic vending machine. You can get to do what you want. God is God. And he has his own purposes that he's going to accomplish. He has his own agenda. He has his own schedule. And since he's God and we're not, our ideas about what he should be doing and when he should be doing it really don't matter all that much. And this is the crux of what happens in Nazareth. They assumed they would be more important to Jesus than anyone else. They, they assumed that they knew him better than anyone else. They assumed they knew exactly what he'd do. And when none of that turned out to be true, that's when they turn on him. And so often we do the same thing. We assume that, that we are more important than anyone else. And so God should respond to our prayers just the way we want him to, right at the time we want him to. Right? We, we pray for the rain to stop and get mad when it doesn't, but what about all the people who are praying for more rain? God does not conform to us. In fact, he expects us to conform to him because his way is better. His plans are better. His designs are better. And if we want to reject all of that, we can. He will let us. So I'm going to invite you, as you read through the Gospels, pay attention. You're going to read things you don't like. You'll read things that you wish were not in there. That's true whether you're conservative or liberal. doesn't matter. There's stuff in there you won't like and that you will wish Jesus hadn't said. But instead of rejecting them, instead of ignoring them or overlooking them or pretending that they aren't part of the gospel or just putting them out of your mind, you should focus on them. You should read those parts again and again and pray over them because the parts of the gospel that you don't like, 
the things you read that you wish Jesus didn't say, those are the places where you're rejecting Jesus just like the people of Nazareth did. And instead of rejecting Jesus, that's the moment when you should invite him to change your heart to be more like his. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit,